Welcome back. We're so excited to be back for a second series of Pause and Listen, the podcast from Pause. Thankfully, the first series was popular enough for us to make a second one. So thank you so much to everyone who listened, downloaded and shared the podcast. To start the second series of Pause and Listen, we're talking about domestic abuse. The majority of women who choose to work with Pause have experienced domestic abuse and will be exploring lesser known elements of abuse such as coercive control and economic abuse and talking about the impact of that abuse on the women that work with Pause and their children. The episode isn't about pause or what we do, but more about exploring and raising awareness of abuse. Today is the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women and starts the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. We wanted to commemorate this day and really raise awareness of the impact of domestic abuse and also where people can get help and support. We'll be hearing from some women who work with PAUSE about their and their children's experiences. Teresa Parker, Head of Communications at Women's Aid and Dr Nicola Sharp-Jeffs from Surviving Economic Abuse. Before we start, I wanted to give everyone a trigger warning to say that some of the content of this episode will contain discussions around violence and control and could be triggering for some. If you need support, you can head to Women's Aid website on womensaid.org.uk, Surviving Economic Abuse website on survivingeconomicabuse.org, or call the National Domestic Abuse Helpline run by Refuge on 0808 2000 24-7. Now I'm delighted to be joined by Teresa Parker, Head of Communications at Women's Aid. Full disclosure, Teresa and I used to work together at Women's Aid, so it's a real treat to be able to work together on something again. Hi Teresa. Hi Claire. That's a treat for me as well. <laughs> Good. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we're going to talk a bit specifically about coercive control. And one of the things that we worked together on when we were at Women's Aid was the campaign to make coercive and controlling behaviour a criminal offence, which it became in 2015. Can you tell us a bit more about that offence? For many years, what we used to say is only part of domestic abuse is against the law. It used to be broken up into GBH. ABH yeah. and, and homicides yeah. and now we, for the first time we're able to say that domestic abuse is against the law because the coercive control legislation changed everything for women who are being abused. Teresa tell us a bit about coercive control and how it impacts on women's lives and how they experience it. Domestic abuse traditionally used to be thought of as just being physical abuse. The law didn't capture all the vast majority of abuse, which was the everyday treading on eggshells, being fearful of your partner. And coercive and controlling behaviour can take many different forms. So it can include isolation, depriving their partners of food, of freedom, monitoring them, monitoring phones, social media, demanding passwords, and that idea of being tracked and controlled by somebody else completely. But sometimes it's like having a range of different tactics. You don't have to physically abuse somebody. All you need to know is that this is what could happen. And we know that with coercive control, it's one of the biggest indicators of potential homicide. It's actually about the loss of control. So when an abusive person has lost control of his partner, and she tries to leave, regardless of whether that includes a physical abuse or not. When coercive control is there, it's the most dangerous time for a woman. And the reason why refuges and other domestic abuse services are so important. It's completely suffocating when you're experiencing coercive control. 
you're normally quite exhausted because some of that abuse can involve stopping you from being able to sleep or rest properly or from even being able to have 10 minutes to get outside the house so that you can have some thinking time. For a lot of women who are not being physically hit big and they understand they're being abused in some way, but it's much wider than that. For every professional that a woman might come across, they absolutely need to understand that coercive control underpins virtually all domestic abuse and you don't have to be hit for it to count. I think that's such an important message, isn't it? Once you start to really understand the nature of coercive and controlling behaviour and the impact that it can have is when actually potentially that light bulb goes on. And you've worked with programmes like EastEnders and Coronation Street on their recent domestic abuse storylines, haven't you? Specifically about coercive control. Why do you think they wanted to talk about this in their storylines? Since the coercive control legislation came in, people have tried to tell stories in different ways. And from my perspective, it's the biggest opportunity to increase understanding of coercive control. Because when it's in your living room, on your TV with characters you care about, and also to huge, huge audiences, you can increase so much awareness of what domestic abuse actually is. And I was working with EastEnders and with Coronation Street, and still am, over the past two years. The level of research that has gone into both storylines is literally incredible. With both storylines, they were very different stories. And I think what's important is that you tell different stories about different types of relationships, because I think when people think about domestic abuse, you might think of a stereotypical couple. The storyline with EastEnders was inspired when Kate Oates from EastEnders, she listened to Woman's Hour and she heard about domestic homicides and she thought, well, that's a story that isn't usually told. So to come to us and to decide this is a long-term story, this is going to be a perpetrator who's really charming, who people actually look up to as a hero. And then what we do is we reveal in very, very small parts, drip, drip, what he's actually doing until it becomes really evident. And then you start putting all the pieces of the jigsaw together. We work really closely with the actors. We visited the set with a survivor of coercive control who spoke to Jessica Plummer, who played Chantal, about what it's like to experience abuse. And Toby, who plays Grey, who's the perpetrator, who ends up killing Chantal, has now become an ambassador for Women's Aid, which is amazing because he felt inspired to want to work with us to help others. With Coronation Street, we have a team of scriptwriters who really, really wanted to show coercive control, but show it with an older couple in a different point in their life with grandchildren, very different dynamic. They wanted to show a storyline where there wasn't physical abuse. And it's that involvement of women and survivors, isn't it, that I think makes it feel realistic. So have you seen like a real increase in awareness about domestic abuse and coercive control? I've never known anything like it, the impact that it's had on our direct services. Often after women who watched Coronation Street or EastEnders, they'd emailed us and told us about historic abuse because watching it, they realised that what they'd been experiencing at the time, they didn't think counted as domestic abuse. And as they saw it happening, they said, actually, I'm sat next to my own Jeff. They've now got the language to be able to explain what's happening to them. And for one woman, she was still with her husband and she'd been with him for just under 50 years. And she was reaching out for support for the very first time. That's amazing. And the, the power of those two soaps, hugely impactful, isn't it, on survivors? It really is. And I think that survivors' voices are woven throughout the words that the characters are saying.
The majority of women who work with pause who've had children removed from their care have experienced domestic abuse. Do you think that their specific experiences are understood by professionals and the wider public? I think there's a huge lack of understanding. We need to have all professionals speaking to each other and really understanding the dynamics of domestic abuse. Knowing your local specialist domestic abuse service is not about being the expert yourself. It's about being able to signpost, to be able to look at what resources there are and to recognise that trauma because when you experience abuse but you don't even know that it counts, it's so overwhelming and so exhausting that it can be really, really hard to be able to make your own decisions because you don't know who the best person is and you don't necessarily even have the words to describe what you've been through. And finally, if there's someone listening to this episode that might think that they're experiencing abuse and want to get help, or they might know someone that might need help, can you tell us a bit about where people can get support? On our website, which is womensaid.org.uk, we've got a range of support, some of which is online and sometimes is signposting to local organisations. But whatever support you need, we've got information and we've got information in different languages, different formats. And also we've got a signposting to other specialist organisations we work with. One resource which can be really useful is called the Survivor's Handbook, which breaks down by topic what area of help you need so if you need support you can also email us we've got a direct services team that can get back to you we really recognize that part of the journey is being able to speak to somebody for the first time and that's not always easy so we run a forum called the survivors forum we moderate that forum but it's very much survivors helping other survivors and it's a really lovely space thank you so much Teresa it's been brilliant talking to you again and sort of raising awareness of type of domestic abuse and that underlying control and coercion that exists for so many women that pause works with and so many women across the country now we'll hear from a woman who works with pause who's chosen to share her experiences on the podcast today her story really illustrates the power of coercive and controlling behavior and the impact it can have and we thank her for sharing her story. I've got six children. I, I was in two domestic violence relationships. I've only got one child in foster care. Others are with family members. My first partner, what were violent, he was okay for the first few months. And then he was jealous when I went to shops. He used to, because his mum lived over at road from me, he used to tell her to come to the shop with me, which was only around the corner keep an eye on me fruit day. He used to ring his mum from work to come over and that I didn't have nobody in the house. Then he'd go into stuff I'm wearing, questioning where I've been while he's been at work, even though I'm only in the house all day while my kids were at school. Smashed my house up. I think it's got where he didn't have drugs because he were on drugs. I used to feel brunt of that. Emotional abuse or well, we physical abuse. I left him after being with him for eight years. Then I got into another violent relationship and he was saying controlling, controlling my money. I had to ask him when I wanted a cig and said please and thank you. And he was very strict with my children. Um, and I left him after being with him for two years. I know it's affected my kids quite a lot. They've been working with services for therapy. I think my daughter, she did a good few months for it. But my son, it affected him more, these services said. So they had to keep him on longer. And I think it's just like, 
he got bad behaviour issues now and I think that's because of everything he witnessed. Sorry, my son. I don't sleep a lot. I'm scared of loud noises. My partner now, if he shuts a cupboard door, I jump out my skin because when I was with my ex, I used to be asleep upstairs in bed and he used to bang on the ceiling to let me know he was coming up. I have nightmares about what he used to do to me and I'm sad all the time when I think back everything he did. My first ex-partner, he brought my leg in four places, so I've also got physical scars. Altogether, it's been 10 years of abuse between two partners. One of the reasons I lost my children, because I stayed in a violent relationship. I did leave my partner before social workers got involved, but I failed to protect them, and they had video evidence of what my ex-partner were doing to me, because he used to record it. And um, my sister come across an SD card where my ex-partner were abusing me and that got given to police and social workers come across it and told me I've got to take my kids to my sister's um, and if I went to collect them back, my sister would to ring police. I just want to say to people what's in this situation that if they go to support services, they actually do a safety plan, even for people still in their relationships to help them get out and I didn't think it would help but it were a real eye-opener. There were some women in my group what didn't even know they were being abused and they were sent there to do this course and in the end of 12 weeks they actually said wow now I know him. I'm in an abusive relationship with my children. They actually don't want to speak to me anymore because they blame me for what they witnessed. I know I failed to protect them but I was scared as well and I think that they'll understand it more as they grow up. So I'm really delighted to be joined now by Dr Nicola Sharp-Jeffs, or the award-winning, newly honoured Dr Nicola Sharp-Jeffs OBE, to be exact. Nicola is the founder and chief exec of Surviving Economic Abuse, a charity that aims to raise awareness of economic abuse and change society's response to it. Hi, Nicola. Hi, Claire. Thanks very much for having me. So some people listening to this episode might not know that much about economic abuse. Can you tell us a bit about it and why you set up Surviving Economic Abuse? Economic abuse has always been there. It was actually something that survivors named back in the 1970s. But it hasn't been a term that's been used very extensively or really understood. And some listeners might be more familiar with the term financial abuse certainly because policy definitions of domestic abuse have talked very much about physical, sexual, emotional and financial abuse. And with the difference between financial abuse and economic abuse, financial abuse would be around the control of money and finances, whereas economic abuse would be about the control of those things as well, but also other things that money can buy, so economic resources more broadly. So the money for a bus fare or petrol in a car or even a car to be able to get into and leave, accommodation overnight, whether that be from friends and family or B&B or access to specialist domestic abuse accommodation, you can start to see how this is a factor that limits a lot of women's decision-making. I would say that economic abuse is very rarely used in isolation, so we commonly see it alongside emotional abuse. And actually for many years, lots of examples of economic abuse were understood to be emotional abuse, which is probably, again, one of the reasons why as a society we haven't really talked about it. 
I started to work in the violence against women and girls sector um, back in 2006. And I think what really struck me when I spoke to women about their experiences of domestic abuse was that their economic well-being really threaded through those descriptions of what had happened to them. Whatever I was talking to them about, economic abuse would find its way to the top of the, the conversation. I think something that we've certainly heard about from women that we work with is that element of restarting your life when maybe you've had loans taken out on your name, you've got bad credit, and it really impacts on that whole economic well-being of someone, doesn't it? And you see how it's so difficult to, to get back to that independence and get back to that life. Yeah, certainly. And I suppose also just to flag some of the nuances around economic abuse, it's always about control because it's in the context of coercive control. We speak to a lot of victims and survivors who do have access to money and who do have a lot of economic resources. But what the perpetrator does is control those through exploitation or sabotage. Economic abuse can also, as well as creating dependence in some cases, also create a lot of instability. And again, a lot of abusers will often insist on a lifestyle which is beyond the means of the family. So a victim survivor might be working all hours, all their money will be taken up into kind of keeping this lifestyle going and the perpetrator might be taking out debts and other loans and credit agreements in their victim's name. Or the victim might feel compelled to do that themselves in order to create that context that makes the, the abuser happy to avoid any kind of physical or sexual violence if they don't do those things. That really creates a different starting point from which to build your own life independently because you might not have any resource to do that. On paper, it might look like you have assets, but the abuser won't let you have access to those which then would make difficult renting a property privately, perhaps financing a new car if you've had to leave a car behind. What we also know in relation to economic abuse is that it does extend post-separation. So a lot of perpetrators will know if it's difficult to access those economic resources post-separation, then a lot of victims and survivors might well return. Um, and again, especially if you have children and you're wanting to look after their well-being, and that's very difficult to do sometimes as a single parent. So you can absolutely see why some victims and survivors might go back to a perpetrator or actually might enter into a relationship with someone else and start living with them a little bit sooner than they'd wanted to, purely because financially it makes sense to share costs within a household. Being precarious in terms of financial well-being also means that a lot of women are at a danger of that landlord who would say, well, you know, if you can't afford your rent this month, then sleep with me instead. Or the loan shark who appears on the front door and says, look, you know, I can help you out. In as much as leaving creates safety in lots of ways, it also creates lots of other situations in which women might be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So safety for women generally is a really important thing. From our perspective, it really helps underpin that physical safety and enable women to make choices. Do you think that economic abuse is well understood by professionals what support is there out there for survivors and does there need to be more the reason I set the charity up was really to shine a light on this form of abuse as we said it's not something really that society generally understands um, and sadly that does translate into the understanding of professionals as well as a charity back in 2017 we did recognize very early on that if economic abuse could be recognized within the statutory definition of domestic abuse introduced by the Domestic Abuse Bill, which is currently going through Parliament, then that would make a huge difference. But also, if you're going to introduce economic abuse within a statutory definition, there is an understanding and indeed a duty now for statutory agencies to really understand this form of abuse and to start to factor it into their training for professionals and also in relation to their practice more broadly. We see sometimes professionals might decide that 
a mother's neglecting their child, for example, because they might not be nutritionally well fed, they might have ill-fitting clothes and they might not have a winter coat. They might be living in a house that isn't suitable for them. So all of these things that sometimes are seen as the women's fault actually might be really a presentation of economic abuse. That is not her choice. It's just that she doesn't have the economic resources she needs her partner is stopping her from having access to those things. You can see how a professional from the outside looking in without that understanding of economic abuse and how it operates within the context of coercive control might not see that. So for us, it's really important that there's an awareness of what it looks like, depending on professional context. And what we also find when we work with professionals in this way is that they themselves start to recognise how their systems, their policies and their procedures can sometimes inadvertently be used by the perpetrator in terms of manipulation, also to continue that control that they've been exerting. So what's really rewarding for myself, I think, is when you see that thought process happening and the professionals themselves starting to say, well, this is where we need change. That's how we can close down that loophole. That's how we can stop the perpetrator from continuing to exert control. As you might know, the majority of women who work with pause who've had children removed from their care, have experienced domestic abuse. Do you think their specific experiences are understood by professionals and the wider public? I think professionals need to do more to understand how common economic abuse is. Within the context of domestic abuse, we know that 95% of victims will experience economic abuse within that. And talking to the point around coerced debt specifically, we know that six in 10 will also be in debt because of the perpetrator, which will be limiting their options. It's about professionals really understanding how from the outside looking in, things might be very, very different. And actually, if they do understand what economic abuse looks like, then they will be able to better understand the situations that women and children find themselves in and make sure that the accountability is on the abuser in terms of making those things change so that women aren't penalised and they don't lose their children. If we can find ways of maximising access to their economic resources at the same time as reduce those economic liabilities, I think that will make a real difference because it will enable women to be independent, to make the choices that they want to make and fundamentally to be able to look after themselves and their children. And finally, Nicholas, if someone listening to this episode thinks they might be experiencing economic abuse or, or they know someone who might be experiencing economic abuse, where can they get help and support? There's lots of help and support around economic abuse on Surviving Economic Abuse's website. So that's www.survivingeconomicabuse.org. That includes information for victims and survivors themselves in terms of what economic abuse looks like, how they might want to report to the police about that experience and the language they would use, how to access grants and financial help, how to have a conversation with a bank, how to access resources specifically for children, how they might approach issues around housing, and that would include women who have mortgages because sometimes they've left out of the conversation. So there's a whole host of information on our website for a victim and survivor about economic abuse, what it is, how it links across to lots of different areas and how support can be accessed in relation to those. At the same time, we also have a guide for family, friends, um, colleagues who might be concerned about the victim or survivor, which talks about things to look out for, but also how to broach conversations about this issue, which can be very difficult. And I suppose it's just worth mentioning that it's difficult as a society to talk about abuse and it's difficult really as a society to talk about money and economic resources more broadly. So when you bring those two things together, then it can feel like a double challenge. So it's kind of really important that we start having conversations about these issues and normalising them so that it's easier to support a victim or survivor and certainly create a context within which it's easier for them to talk about what's happening at home. 
Thank you so much for that. And thanks so much for joining me today as well. It's been a really important conversation. I know one that will resonate particularly with lots of the women we work with. Finally, we hear from another woman who works with Pause and has chosen to share her story with us today. Her experiences powerfully illustrate the destructive impact that domestic abuse had on her and her children. She also talks about the importance of getting support and help. And we thank her for sharing her story with us today. I've got three kids, three girls, seven, four and two. They currently live with me mum because my youngest dad told the police that he was going to be in the house down and kill them. The domestic abuse started two weeks into the relationship. One time we were out and he didn't like the fact I'd seen an old school friend, so instantly told us that we had to leave. Because I said I didn't want to leave because we've only just arrived, he smashed a glass bottle in my face and a few weeks later I'd done the same again but for no reason. Then there's the time I was having a fit and he locked me in a room, poured a bottle of fizzy pop over us and said as a lie. Luckily there was other people in the house to help me get away. Towards the end of the relationship on a regular occasion, he put his hand over my mouth and nose. He said it was to shut me up, but there were many occasions I feared he was going to kill me. Then one night when this was happening, I reached for my phone while I was screaming out and I needed my mum's help. He chased us into the kitchen where he repeatedly smashed my head off the floor, managed to seek help, was rushed to hospital. At this point, I knew, really knew that it had to be the end. I thought I was going to die that night. Had a massive impact on me and my children as I'd always been a full-time stay-at-home confident mum until he came into my life and started telling me I have a horrible body, I'm ugly and just generally pointing out all of the all of my insecurities. Then one day I told the police officer that he was going to burn my house down and kill my kids, at which point I had no other option but let my mum take the girls for all of our safeties. This made my whole world come crashing down and my life no longer worth living. I'm nothing without my babies. No services really made a difference as I've got really bad trust issues and I finally gained a bit of trust in my support work at Diane, although this took many months. Speak out, it's hard because no matter what they do to you, you still love them sometimes, like love does funny things to you, but you've got to speak out. You've got to in the end, if you don't want to talk to professionals, talk to family, talk to friends, talk to somebody who you can trust. So that's it for this episode and I'd like to take the opportunity to say a huge thank you to the women for sharing their experiences. It's so important to hear from them about what they've been through and what help they got. Thank you to also to Teresa and Nicola for sharing their insight. With the majority of women working with poor experience domestic abuse, it's such an important issue to discuss and raise awareness of. As I mentioned at the beginning, if you need support, you can head to Women's Aid website on womensaid.org.uk, Surviving Economic Abuse website on survivingeconomicabuse.org, or call the National Domestic Abuse Helpline on 0808 2000 24-7. We'll be back soon with another episode of Pause and Listen. But in the meantime, if you want to find out more about Pause, just go to pause.org.uk or find us on Twitter at Pause.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And until next time, from me, thank you.